millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is London Estat Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe and uh, warm and cuddly London greetings to you. It's uh, just about summer here in London, which means everyone has no idea what to wear. You leave the house in the morning with three anoraks, a large duffel coat, a pair of boots, some flippers, a snorkel and a pair of shorts and hope for the best. I never find myself carrying so much rainwear as I do in the summer. Our show this week takes us to South London, where on the day of recording conditions were monsoon-like. Meanwhile, somewhere far sunnier, well, probably foggier, actually, this podcast is causing merry chaos in San Francisco. Jen on Twitter, Jen on the go, tweets, and this is my, <laughs> this is my favourite tweet for ages. She says, uh, that feeling when you're listening to Londonist Out Loud about the Thames Clippers, but you're on the San Francisco Municipal train, and you get up when the docking announcement plays not your stop. I can tick that off my lifetime ambition list. I've got a podcast that prompts people in San Francisco to hurl themselves from moving vehicles. Uh, not that it sounds like the SF Mooney, as the hashtag would have it. Not that it sounds as though that does a lot of moving. Have a look at that hashtag and you'll see a story of misery to rival that of the Northern Line when it decides to stop between stations for half an hour. Tracy Bryce says that she enjoyed the Tim's Walk episode of the show so much that she bought the book. Thank you very much, Tracy. That will warm David Father's heart. And Duncan Kelman, meanwhile, uh, referring to the same episode, has awarded us an accolade. He says that we are probably the best aggregate-based podcast of 2016. Uh, what do you mean, probably? Are you suggesting that there is another competitive aggregate-based podcast? Very worrying. And listen, a week or two ago, when we were doing secret London runs, we were discussing the origins of Red Cross Way in South London. And I, I thought I'd get in touch with the expert, John Constable. He knows all about the Crossbones Graveyard, which is located on that street. And so I put the question to him, where does Red Cross Way get its name? He writes back, he says, I don't exactly know. It is, of course, just north of St George's Fields, and there are signs of St George and the Dragon all over Borough. So maybe it's George's Red Cross emblem. There are also White Cross cottages behind Red Cross cottages and garden, which could give some credence to the story that the Red and White Crosses referred to houses marked by a cross to indicate whether they had the plague. Intriguing. Uh, John's going to dig around a little bit more on that, and if you've got any suggestions, we're all ears. Before we head to Leafy Dulwich, there's something I need to ask you, and that is whether you would consider giving Audible a go. Now, you'll remember Audible has sponsored us in the past, and we love them being our sponsor because it keeps us on air. 
Were it not for their patronage, Wiggy simply wouldn't exist. And I could just hit play on a 30-second commercial with tinkly music in the background and we could all ignore it. But I really need to ask you to get behind our sponsor. There is a tight little loop that goes on here, which is uh, the sponsor that looks after us. We do our best for you. I need you to complete that circuit by giving our sponsor some love. And what that means in practical terms is treating yourself to a free trial of the Audible service. You know Audible is uh, audiobooks. And if ever there was somebody who likes listening to a person's voice while they go about their business, surely it's you. It doesn't matter whether your poison is fiction or non-fiction or something in between. They've got 150,000... Mind-bogglingly, they've got 150,000 titles to choose from. It takes a minute to sign up. You can download something straight away and you get to keep that, whatever you decide about your trial. Cancel it and you won't pay a penny. And you can find yourself sitting pretty with great audio entertainment. Why not sign up while you're listening to this podcast? If, like me, you fancy listening to the complete Sherlock Holmes, you can be doing that for free by the time this podcast is done. If you've already signed up for Audible and you've done that more than 12 months ago, then you can get another free audiobook and uh, you'll be keeping us on the air www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist by the way let me know what you choose as your free book okay that's enough of that as the flight of the Concords uh, sang but referring to something else entirely let's head further south hey baby let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound you ain't never seen the light before just a strong throw from your front door of near-perfect silence, the wonderful padded calm feeling that you're hearing around the microphone here is the result of books that are soaking up the sound and good, solid South London walls that are keeping away the rain. As we look out of these Georgian windows, I've got to say it's a pretty bleak day out there. It's the kind of rain that gets up underneath your trousers. Sheltering from it with me is Ian de Jardin. He is the Sackler Director of Dulwich Picture Gallery. Hi. Hello. Do you have the same feeling of sheltering from the storm here? Heavens, yes. I walk in to work every morning. Usually it's a complete delight, and I felt like I'd been wading through a river this morning. It's a beautiful area to have to wade through. It seems to not matter which way you come at it. There's leafiness everywhere, foliage everywhere. Oh, it looks like a Jane Austen film set, I always think. It's one of the few places in London where you could... You could film Jane Austen without doing much more than disguising the odd telegraph poles, a tree or so. It just, it, it's a remarkable survival for all sorts of reasons, most of which are to do with the presence of Dulwich Picture Gallery and the old college here. Um, they've guarded the land really well. And a, a fine area it is as well. And you get the impression that wealth has probably attended the area for quite some time. Some of the places across the road are uh, mansions. I think you can safely say that. Yeah. But I think it was, you know, in the 19th or 18th century, it, it was a, there was a coaching inn in Dulwich Village. And so it's one of the first kind of commuter areas of London. People, even in the 18th century, would catch the coach to go into the, the financial district. And I think, consequently, it's always attracted fairly wealthy people. And the fact, then, of course, the fact that there was a, a school here, a major school, Dulwich College, and then, of course, the first public art gallery in England, I think just attracted 
a certain amount of wealth to the area. So it is. It's very well healed, I think, is the word. And you've reminded me that at uh, Brixton, just up the road, there was an area there which was used for quite a long time as a coach stop for people heading down to the south coast. So I guess it sounds as though this area has been that sort of thing for a couple of hundred years, sort of on the on the fringes of London. No, oh, at least. But I mean, the amazing thing here is there's there's huge amounts of history just all all around us in the landscape. You know, I mean, I walk past boundary oaks on the way to work in the morning, you kind of look at these things, these beautiful old oak trees, because they were marking the fields. And this area still has that sort of feel to it. The fields are gone, but not that long ago, beginning of the 20th century, the last farm stopped farming, as it were, and it all became public park. But it still feels like that. And just up on the top of the hill, just beyond where I live, there's old oak woods, you know, and those are the old, it's the last remnants of the North Wood, which... Um, north, oddly, it's south of here, but nonetheless, it was north in regard to the South Towns. And it was a huge forest that spread across England. And, you know, the Stuarts, the Stuart kings used to hunt there. There's a bit of it still left. I keep coming across this kind of history around here. It's very special. We should turn our focus to the building we're in, uh, the institution we're in, we should say. We've got things to talk about in terms of the exhibition that's coming up and that's hanging at the moment. But maybe we could get here via you and your arrival. How long have you been Sackler Director here? Well, how long have you been Director? I don't know if those two things go hand in hand, precisely. Ah. No, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's slightly arbitrary. I've been Sackler Director since about 2009, but I became Director of the institution in 2005. So quite a long time now. But before that, I was curator, in fact. And so I arrived on the site in 1998, which now, you know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, it was kind of ages and ages ago. And actually, I'm the last person here that remembers the gallery before the major refurbishment in around 2000, we reopened in 2000. So I remember the cork floors, you know, sort of charming cork floors, that were hideous beyond belief, but quite warm to sit on if you oh, were. Very good for recording as well. Could we go and fetch <laughs> some of that? <laughs> no, well, we replaced it with the oak boards. They look better, but uh, yes, you've lost a certain something. I don't know what. Um, so yes, I remember it as it was before we had a cafe, before we had education facilities, before we had decent toilets for the public, you know, all of these things which came late. Oh, and, and all of which sound like, as any visitor to a gallery would probably think, essential components of a gallery trip. <laughs> yes. How were you doing without those? <laughs> well, we'd managed for 200 years. I mean, this is the astonishing thing. We've been here longer than anybody else. I mean, we're the oldest public art gallery um, in this country, certainly. That deserves a, a beat. Yes, uh, well. At the oldest in the country. Yes, absolutely. We were founded in 1811. So we've been here forever. And the... Um, the building went up and was really up structurally by 1812, in fact. John Soane designed it. But mysteriously, John Soane, of course, designing the first public art museum, didn't really think in terms of public toilets or, you know, a fabulous palatial director's office or anything like that. You know, we just kind of muddled by. And uh, it was many, many years before we had basic facilities. But you have to realise that those basic facilities grew out of what Dulwich was in the early days. Well, when one thinks of his place, his his workspace actually was the least ornamented part of the building, it seemed to me, that the public area, the semi-public areas where he's displaying 
pieces of art, that seemed much more extravagant. Oh, indeed. Well, he loved art, of course, so knew what he was doing. He was interesting because he was the friend of our founders. I mean, our founders were a pair, kind of, I don't know what you'd call them, but they were fairly interesting. They were foreigners, really. Um, Noel Desafon was French, and Francis Bourgeois was half Swiss. His mother was English. And consequently, outsiders, but they were art dealers trying to break into the art establishment and putting together a collection originally commissioned by the King of Poland. I mean, it becomes kind of a cinematic story by this point, global in its ambitions. But they were putting together a collection for the King of Poland in the 1790s, and that all fell through, as did Poland, indeed. It ceased to exist in 1795. Catherine the Great saw to that. And the collection was left... Is that because he spent all his <laughs> defence budget on paintings? <laughs> You're so right, actually. Um, just at the moment, in 1790, when Stanislav August Poniatowski, for such was his name, should have been thinking about his borders, he was thinking about paintings. That was clearly what Poland needed, was a, a really great collection of paintings. So Catherine the Great taught him a lesson. The, the ideal combination of interests would presumably be to border his country with an outward-facing Trump loy impression of empty fields so nobody would know there was something to invade. Had you suggested it, I'm sure you've gone <sighs> for that, really. Another great idea, Gun. <laughs> so they're putting together this collection. They're putting together the collection, and they were, um, but they were left with it on, the, on their walls. But I think they were natural friends of John Soane, because John Soane, although he was part of the art establishment in the sense that he was a you know he was a lecturer in in architecture at the royal academy and all of that and was revered in his time he was a difficult man i think by all accounts but he obviously got on well with Zezafon bourgeois and he designed actually a mausoleum for them in their own home they had a they had two houses that were put together in mayfair and i mean it sounds bizarre but basically Desafon wanted to be buried in a mausoleum in his own house. And so Soane designed this little temple with sarcophagi in his own home. And then, of course, once the gallery was founded by Bourgeois, Desenfant died first, Bourgeois left the money for the gallery and asked that Soane design it. He also asked that he and Desenfant and Desenfant's wife, Margaret, should be buried on site. And so we... <laughs> sort of 10 feet away from the Rembrandt, you know, we have our three founders in their sarcophagi in this bizarre mausoleum, right, slap in the middle of the, of the exhibition rooms, which is, it's a kind of, it's a unique selling point, I think, for Dulwich Picture Galleries. Not many galleries have dead people at their heart. Well, not knowingly. Not knowingly, of course. If you dig down a few feet, you might find a few. I've often suspected in one or two of the national galleries, you know, those benches that they've got in the middle there where people seem to have nodded off, I, I wonder. Yeah, big enough. But... <laughs> Just lingering on Soane for a second, because we know the, uh, or some people will know the famous motif that connects the, the gallery with other items around town. And maybe we can say something about that. But I wondered whether I'm piecing together a bit of an impression of him. Clearly, he's fond of the continental, particularly the Italianate styles. And this friendship that you mentioned here, I, I wonder if he was a bit of a, a Europhile and a bit of a disdainer of Englishness in some way? Did he disdain English culture somehow? I don't know if that's the case. I don't really know enough about architectural history to, to pronounce on that. But, I mean, the, the style of the gallery 
was much derided in uh, in its own day. I mean, they, people didn't really understand what it was. They thought it was kind of Greco-Roman. The Muslim on the outside has elements that suggest almost Egyptian. You know, they have these slightly sloping doors, which are actually tiny if you stand in them. They're really quite small. It's like a dinky model of a, of a gallery out there. It's all about proportion. So he mixed up his styles, and there is a, there's an element there also of the Jacobean, which is fascinating and, and bizarre. And if you look at the original drawings for the gallery, he had Jacobean-style windows, and you wonder what, what the hell is going on. But actually what he was doing was echoing the building we're sitting in now because the old college, which was founded in 1619 thereabouts by an actor, Edward Allen, was a Jacobean institution. And the building that you can just, if you look out the window just there, we have to imagine this, but looking out the window there, there's a great white wall there. And that is actually the side of the chapel. And the chapel in the old college was traditionally thought to be by Inigo Jones, the great Renaissance um, architect in Britain. And so that is why Soane was so respectful of the Jacobean building that already stood here, because it was considered to be associated with Inigo Jones, who was a great hero of his. So there's a curious kind of link here with a site. You know, in, in architectural terms, it was a kind of holy of holies even before Soane did his magic outside. And it went down badly. Yes. I mean, people never really understood Soane. He was quite a difficult architect. He was quite cerebral and, and, and intellectual in his approach. And what, what makes this building great, funnily enough, is, is something that um, all architects will hate me for saying. But very often, if you restrict an architect really fiercely, the results are, are better because they have to be creative with what they've got. Yeah, so too in all sorts of branches of creativity. Absolutely, there's nothing better than taking the money away, he said. Well, no, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not. But in the case of, of Soane, I think it did work like that, because if you look at the early drawings for, for this building, it's all covered in marble. You know, he, he really wanted it to be a gleaming white marble edifice with you know, Roman reliefs all over it and carvings and, and, and urns and that kind of thing. And, of course, you know, the budget wasn't there. The, the, the school, the old college, didn't have the budget. Mrs. Desenfant left the money that allowed it to be built. She died in 1813. And Soane didn't charge a fee, but still, there wasn't the money. So it was kind of no to white marble, yes to London brick. And he had to build the thing in, in London brick. And consequently, he produced one of the great seminal buildings of the 19th century. Ironically, the building that it reminds <laughs> that reminds me most of Dulwich Picture Gallery and must have been inspired by it is the current Tate Modern because, of course, Tate Modern was designed as a power station by Gilbert Scott, who was a great Stone fan. So, ironically, it seems rather appropriate that a power station turned into Tate Modern. And this could easily have been a lot more kitsch by the sound of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had a narrow escape. Where should we do the fact? Yes. Well, of course, that's Gilbert Scott again. As Gilbert Scott designed the telephone box, and the telephone box has that wonderful kind of handkerchief dome effect. It's become iconic, and you assume that it's just always been there. But, of course, it's, it's based on the mausoleum here at Dulwich, which has that exact... It's as if, if you painted it red, the top of the mausoleum would look like we'd hoisted a, a phone box up there. And Gilbert Scott, you know, is just quoting Soane. 
And I saw you've got a telephone box outside so people can make the connection. Acquired by a former director, absolutely. Even to this day, there's wars break out between the education department and the curatorial department as to who it belongs to. Getting back to the, the foundation of the gallery itself rather than the architecture, the image I've got in my mind, and I've got very little knowledge of art collections and what they would have looked like, so the image that's coming to mind is from the Renaissance period where you have those enormous walls filled, every bit of them is filled with very little thought to composition mm-hmm. with pictures and that is seen as a great mark of wealth and taste that you've got all these pictures jammed in together mm-hmm. and it feels like there must be an enormous change of some sort that happens between that and the foundation of the gallery in the, the early 18th century Yes, although when Soane designed the building, I mean, the early depictions of it that exist, and of course because it's such a famous building, there are photographs, early prints, early watercolours throughout the 19th century, the hang was much more dense than it is now. And I know why, because, you know, to this day we have problems with storage in the sense that, you know, you can get about 250 paintings, but there were already 350 paintings in the collection, even in 1817 when the doors first opened to the public. So... As there was, along with the fabulous director's office, Soane did not design a store. I mean, such a thing hadn't been thought of. So everything had to be hung because there was nowhere else to put it. And consequently, in the early years, certainly, of the gallery, it was pretty dense. I mean, you know, a bit like a car boot sale, really. (laughs) Every square inch. But one of the things I discovered really early on as curator here was because one of the things that's famous about the gallery is the top lighting. It has these wonderful um, series of skylights. And that's how Soane lit the thing. Very influential, that is. But the remarkable thing that I discovered was that natural light bounces down the wall very evenly. So that, in fact, what he did with kind of baffles and architraves and all the rest of it, bounces the light really well. And you can hang a painting at any point on the walls in the gallery and natural light will fall on it very well so he was obviously thinking along those lines nowadays my current chief curator Xavier Bray has hung the gallery slightly more it's still fairly dense but it's a lot more restrained for instance than I did when I was curator I I crammed them in I quite like that because I I used to work for English Heritage so I have a kind of heritage hat and uh, I like them pile them high is what I say well there is I can see there is an argument if somebody's made the journey to get here and perhaps they're not going to be here as often as all that then what's wrong with putting everything on show well apart from the fact you need to stand on a ladder to see some of them oh that yes well there is that you know (laughs) but you know in the 19th century I mean from some of the images you see you know the Rembrandt would be 20 feet up you know they didn't really think along those lines they just did cram them in but nowadays our our hang is far more considered and you know we do it by schools we probably take a highly precious view of the aesthetics of the thing and hang things beautifully and so everything has to be seen properly if it's a great painting you really want to be kind of eye to eye with it so there are all those considerations that have developed over the 20th century particularly So a a less dense hang is more appropriate and less migraine-inducing, frankly, 
for our visitors, and we don't want to induce migraines in visitors if we can avoid it. Yes, I noticed that on your website. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a crucial strategic plan issue. I was just remembering in Simon's house, actually, I was wondering whether this contributed to his uh, lack of provision of storage space. Those, um, well, I'm not sure how to describe them, really, but he's got, he's got paintings on yeah. uh, sort of pulleys and wheels, and you can, you can fold them out. They're like false walls, aren't they? You fold one out, and there's another one behind it. I know, isn't it wonderful? Perhaps he was expecting more of you as curator. <laughs> I just think, I don't know, it's such a wonderful place. I mean, I'd move into that house tomorrow if it was available. It's just wonderful and tiny. That's the other thing. Again, it's all about proportion rather than scale. And so, you know, he had more paintings than he had wall space for. And so he invents this wonderful system whereby you can open doors and there's a canaletta on the back, you know, and then open another one. There are Hogarth's. It is a wonderful system. I mean, interestingly, I mean, some of the early references to our founders actually showing their paintings to people in their own house in Mayfair, there seems to have been some similar kind of arrangement. Um, paintings were on kind of rods, iron rods, and could be pulled out from the wall to inspect properly. And I bet Soane designed that as well, although we have no evidence of it. Well, if it's good enough for posters in Woolworths. Yeah, no, quite, exactly. Who knew Son was there first? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we could track the progress of the gallery through the subsequent couple of centuries. Well, it's gone through quite a few changes. I mean, basically, we're now looking out the other window here. What looks like, in fact, a view of the 1817, 1811 type building isn't, in fact. That wall we're looking at now is built. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details in 1938 and so actually all of this side of the gallery the east side of the gallery is 20th century in fact in in date they started adding to the gallery in 19 about 1910 1911 and started at the other end and moved towards us here uh, moving northward and added galleries because there was always going to be a problem in terms of space but the other thing that happened was of course that the the school was still here the old college was still here until around 1870 something like that when it moved up the road into this fabulous kind of charles barry building just 100 yards up the road there and when that happened something else happened which was that one of the more eccentric and charming aspects of the history of this gallery was that there were old ladies living in it for quite a long time. It was part of the deal with Stone. One, bury three dead people in the mausoleum right in the middle of the exhibition spaces, but in fact those exhibition spaces were almshouses, and that was part of the, um, the college's insistence on that. So we had six elderly ladies lighting fires ten feet away from a Rembrandt, and it seems to have become a miracle to me that the whole place didn't burn to the ground a long time ago. But they moved out in 1870. Well, now, hold on, hold on. Okay. We're not well, moving away. <laughs> We're not ask. moving off from this this fast. <laughs> so you've got members of the public coming to visit the pictures mm. whilst the old ladies are living in in yes. the gallery, making themselves a cup of tea on the stone. They didn't. They weren't in the gallery. I mean, those rooms were actually separate from the gallery. Uh-huh. They're, they're part of the gallery building, but they, there was no access from the old ladies to the thing. But nonetheless, the fire was still 10 feet away. I'm just amazed. But anyway, they moved out around 1870 because the college moved out, and so they moved into the old college. And that gave more rooms for the collection. And so those rooms were then done up by Charles Barry, the very same Charles Barry, Houses of Parliament uh, architect, who did them up as extra space, and we gained some space at that point. And it strikes me, chiefly through having walked under a beautiful old rail bridge from, I think, 1868, Mm -hmm. just up the way, Mm -hmm. that the railways coming through South London was quite a big De- I mean, tra- utterly transformative in, in places. And I wonder what effect that would have had uh, well, in the middle of the 18th century. Absolutely. It's not accidental. I mean, I just mentioned 1870. I mean, this happens because, in fact, the Dulwich Estate, which still runs the... I mean, it still owns the land around here. The Dulwich Estate... Sorry, this is going to end up being a very complicated history story. But the Dulwich Estate is effectively the manor of Dulwich, the Edward Allen aforementioned actor who founded the college... Edward Allen left the land of the Dulwich Manor to the college as an endowment. And to this day, it is managed as an endowment for the college. That's why it still looks leafy. That's why it still looks like a Jane Austen site. There you are. There's the history in a nutshell. But the Dulwich estate, apart from owning all the property, they actually were able to sell off the land to the railway 
for the benefit of the college. And that's how the college, the brand new building, got built for a start. They could afford it. They'd made a fortune out of the railways. We got West Dulwich Station and North Dulwich Station. And at the same moment, Charles Barry, interestingly, designs a porch, a larger porch for Dulwich Picture Gallery, since demolished, but it was at the south end, because of the sudden influx of visitors that was expected around that time. Simultaneously, just behind you, on the wall there, in the shelves, there's a set of old leather-bound books, and those are the visitor books, and they start in the 1860s as well. So we must presume that the visitor books were installed in the porch, the new porch by Charles Barry, there to welcome the flood of visitors coming in on the railway that the old college had sold for the benefit of the college. And they all signed the visitor book as they came in. Can we have a look at one? Uh, yes. I was just going to wonder which one I should get. I'll, get uh, I'll see if I can find it. 1871. That's probably a good one. Oh, yes, these are these long books. They look like a family photo album in size. They're gorgeous. The only trouble is there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of signatures. Every single one in beautiful copperplate. Of course, they're beautiful. They could write in those days. I'm not going to find the one I was looking for, but in here, for instance, actually in 1873, two years after this, Van Gogh came. He walked. He was only 19. He walked from Brixton, where he was staying, and he signed the visitor book. He also, incidentally, broke the nib. Typical. Um, and can, can you tell that from his uh, signature? Yeah, oh, yes. There's, sort of just, <laughs> there's a kind of blight of blots on the visitor book after Van Gogh visited. You can just imagine him um, overdoing the signature. He does it with a flourish, and the whole thing collapses. But, yes, yeah, so we have these wonderful things. And, of course, the great thing is that alongside these beautiful copper plate things, which is just, you know, Mr. Hall from Bromley... Um, Mr. and Mrs. Lees from Norwood, somebody from Dulwich College there has signed it. You open up and you've got the whole of the local area turning up, but you also have a record, which of course I won't be able to find just looking through it like this, but you'll suddenly come across, you know, visitors from Japan or visitors from China or visitors from Australia or Canada or the States because this was really on the only place to come, apart from the National Gallery, from the really from the 1860s. We were founded 17 years or something before the National Gallery, and in the first half of the 19th century, this was the only place you could really see great old masters on display. And the National Gallery doesn't really take, a, take over as a place to see old masters until the 1860s. So we were very much on the map for visitors from abroad as well. I wonder if I quite joined the dots when it came to understanding how it became, how it, how it broke the uh, private gallery mould and became a public mm. space. Well, uh, the interesting thing is that it's, it's enshrined in bourgeois' will. Before bourgeois died, there were no public art galleries in the sense that they were not purpose-built for the public. You could, for instance, even here at Dulwich College, the master of the college, still called the master of the college to this day, had a collection of paintings that had been given by Edward Allen and by another actor, William Cartwright, in the 17th century, which were on display in the old college building, which is just behind us over there. And if you knew the master or if you wrote a a polite letter to him, he would show you those. Similarly, most other collections were actually aristocratic. 
or a royal, you know, the, the king would have a, a great collection of paintings. And sometimes you would be able to get in to see it if you made special application. But there was never, until our founders left the collection in 1811, there was nowhere you could just go and pay sixpence, which was what it cost in those days, as a member of the ordinary member of the public and go in. It just wasn't a concept that anybody had. Now, in 1811, when Bourgeois dies, the words in his will that are significant is that he leaves the collection for the inspection of the public. There it is in black and white, in the will. And it's the first time anyone really thought about public access. In other words, they saw it as something that would benefit the greater public. It wasn't for aristocrats, it wasn't for the wealthy. So, so this sounds as though it's a very early sign of this phenomenon in Victorian society of self-improvement, autodidacticism, and I guess the rise of the middle class as well. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it, it was clear even, I mean, even the King of Poland, who we've, I've been joking very un, unrespectfully about earlier on, I mean, his heart was in the right place. And he might have actually opened the collection as a public collection for the people of Warsaw, because he saw it as an educational thing. He saw it as something to benefit the progress of the fine arts in Poland. And I think that idea took root in our founders' minds, you know, it was for the benefit of the public. And indeed, Desenfort had written a pamphlet suggesting the creation of a national gallery. He's one of the early proponents of that idea. It wasn't taken up because they were too busy fighting Napoleon at the time. But nonetheless, that idea was in the air, but this was the first time it actually happened. And I think in those days, of course, when things were far less accessible and you know there wasn't the kind of reproductive element you couldn't see good photographs of works of art you you could see black and white prints but you know art wasn't really available to the general public the idea of it is really quite radical and i think they felt quite strongly about it that you couldn't expect the fine arts to flourish in a country where people couldn't see mm. the best examples of that work thinking along those lines makes you realize just how inundated with images we are now Oh, it's completely different. I mean, if you think about the internet, I mean, I was just writing a, a little article earlier on today, and I'm able to actually just go into images, you know, and pull up a titian that I wanted to write about, you know, just like that. There it is in all its detail, and you can you can make it bigger and look at the details. I mean, this has all happened in such. I mean, even in my in my lifetime, in my professional lifetime, you know, I remember you know, 20 years ago, writing lectures and having to scrabble around trying to find slides, remember them? Slides to go in a projector, and now, you know, everything's so easy. It's it's just amazing. Is there a threat, maybe on the wider sense, to the, the line you're in from the easy availability in the comfort of one's own home of the pictures that you've got on the walls here? It's almost it's impossible to say, isn't it? I mean, everyone's been expecting the book to disappear, you know, um, as I look around me in this office where I'm about to disappear under piles of collapsing <laughs> books, it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. And, and actually, it's interesting that the rise of the e-book doesn't appear to have eclipsed the hardcover book at all. It's gone quite the other way in a way. It's having a bit of a revival by all accounts. So I don't know. It's very difficult. I find you know, the advance of technology at the moment is almost impossible to read. It's moving so fast 
that actually it's difficult to know. I mean, we have now, <laughs> we have an app in the gallery, which, you know, on your mobile phone, you point it at a painting and, and it just tells you what the painting is. I mean, this is unbelievable. It's just, it, it's too much for me to keep, catch up with. But I don't think, I mean, the great benefit is that in an era of proliferation of images of ready accessibility where you can gain you can find anything you can find anything on the internet almost immediately nonetheless there is a value to the the original artifact which increases almost in relation to that accessibility it's the authenticity of the experience that you have to really plug in other words yes you can see an illustration of our of the rembrandt online but if you want to see the brush strokes and if you want to actually kind of commune with the painting in that kind of old-fashioned 19th century way, you've got to come here. Well, this, that's really interesting then. So that sounds exactly like what's going on in the music business in a funny way, which is that you don't expect to make any money off the music that goes on to Spotify. It's the live gigs where you make the money. That's right. And you hope, I mean, what the hope must be there for that Spotify and its like and, and, and sort of Google apps giving you access to paintings are actually functioning as marketing for the real experience. And uh, who knows is the answer to that. I have no <laughs> idea. Ask me in five years' time and we'll see where we are. We'll be able to visit by nano-drone by then. We won't yeah, need to come here at all. Probably. We should um, function as uh, marketing for your upcoming exhibition. Which, uh, actually, I'm quite excited. It's just, I went down earlier today. They're just unpacking the crates now. So I sort of crept and poked my head around the door. I mean, it's all carefully controlled at this point. But um, this is Winifred Knights, who I should explain, no one, no one will have heard that name, I'm sure. It's very unknown. But Dulwich has made a specialty over the years, over the last hmm, almost 20 years, in fact, certainly while I've been here, of looking, at, looking slightly off to the side of the, the great kind of path of art history. I like to look to right and left a bit because... I'm very aware that art history is a, is a construct. It's an artificial construct. And, you you know, certain artists you're supposed to think are the best at any given time, and they may well be. Nonetheless, at any given time, while Cezanne is the best artist, there are countless artists on either side at any given time. And I kind of feel, you know, you owe them to look at the others. A lot of artists have been forgotten or overlooked or they've gone out of fashion or all of those things. And Dalich has made a bit of a, a thing out of looking at some of them. So Winifred Knights is a classic, is a classic Dulwich exhibition. She really came to, into her own in the 1920s. Around 1920, she won the Prix de Rome. She was hailed as a genius, in fact. It meant she could go and study at the British School in, in Rome which suited her fine because she loved the kind of Quattrocento, those wonderful artists, people like um, Piero da Francesca, and earlier to Giotto, people like that. She was particularly influenced by them, but she was beautifully taught to draw. She could draw like, a, like an angel, simply wonderful draftswoman. And the thing about her was that she worked very slowly. She was very fine in her approach to things, and so there wasn't, she didn't complete things very fast, so there was a very slowness of production. And then she married, she had children, she was child-caring, all these kind of things that take women uh, off the off the route um, to fame and fortune in terms of the arts happened to her. And then, final irony, she died very young. She died at 47 
suddenly brain tumour and unexpected, leaving only five really major paintings completed, but lots of smaller paintings and lots of really great drawings. Anyway, we thought, this is someone who needs rediscovering. She's really dropped between the slats, you know, you just she's disappeared from British art history. Except for one painting, there's a painting in Tate, Britain, called The Deluge. It's one of their most popular paintings in terms of postcard sales, which is how you can, you know, you, you measure these things. Nonetheless, I'm sure people think it's by Stanley Spencer. I, I just have that feeling about it. And uh, it's actually quite a famous work. And so she has one famous painting, bought, incidentally, by Nick Sirota when he first took over at Tate. So there she is, a rediscovery waiting to happen. And she, she really does deserve it. These things are absolutely wonderful. So I think, I think it's going to be one of... It's difficult to judge. There's always a risk putting on that kind of show. But I think there's a buzz. There's a buzz around Winifred Knights. I think we're going to reintroduce a newly famous artist again. About time. How, how do you go about selling? Uh, clearly, we've got the luxury of some uh, space here to talk about her story. I'm certainly intrigued from what you said. But how do you go about promoting a show like that if you don't have recognisable images, recognisable name? Well, what you do is you start 18 years ago and you build up a reputation for doing that kind of show. I mean, I've been working very hard for a very long time building as it were and please forgive the marketing language but it is a kind of brand that Dulwich has um, for doing precisely this kind of show I mean the last show we did was about an unknown Norwegian artist called Nikolai Astrup and I say unknown in Norway they all know about him he's much loved but nobody heard of him outside Norway and there was an opportunity there and Dulwich was obviously the place to do it well you know, 40,000 people came to see Astrup. And they did it because over the years we've built up this very good reputation for doing that kind of show. And people have started to look out for it. They always know that even if they've not heard of the artist, it's, it's going to be a good show. At least I hope that's what people think. And so the press we get is phenomenal. And again, that's been a lot of hard work, building it up over the years, inviting the press out, um, <laughs> occasionally even dragooning them onto buses, you know, in the centre of London and driving them out here. And gradually the press know that they, you know, they ought to come and see the, the latest Dulwich show. And so we get very, very, very good press. So they'll all turn up, I hope, for Winifred Nights. And, and it's open until? Oh, until September. So there's plenty of time, plenty of time for people to see it on over the whole of summer. So, well, it seems to me we've done the 18th century and we've got up till about 1910 and we've covered the uh, the marketing thrust of the 21st century, which only remains for the century with the two world wars in it. So how did Dulwich Picture Gallery fare in that century? In the 20th century, the two world wars in it. Well, we were closed, of course, during the, the Second World War and the paintings went into a slate mine in, in Wales. So we survived pretty well no damage there but the building itself was actually bombed it the bomb didn't hit it directly but it fell off to the side just outside here there was just a moment the damage was such i mean if you've seen the photos they're terrifying the damage was such that a our founders were tossed out of their coffins onto the onto the road and a lot of the building was knocked down on that side on the west side so there was a moment where the gallery there was an argument for it being demolished because it was felt. Stone wasn't popular. You know, it was 
nobody really appreciated the gallery. Particularly the Germans. Well, <laughs> although it has to be said, uh, I'm not, not um, in their favour, but I have to say that uh, they weren't aiming for us. Basically, Germ- the German bombers used to fly out over Crystal Palace because it was the highest point in the south of London. And they were jettison bombs. And that's why Dulwich, that's really why Dulwich was badly bombed. Dulwich was quite badly bombed, not as badly as the inner cities, of course, but nonetheless. It received a surprising number of hits in the Second World War. And that was basically because they were jettisoning bombs as they flew out to, to go back across the channel. In a way, that's even more appalling somehow, I know. isn't it? Accidental damage. We were just happened to be in the way. Why would they choose uh, Crystal Palace? Because it was higher. What difference did that make? That, well, uh, surely that would be more dangerous for them, wouldn't it? Yes, it would be. But it, it was a it was a landmark. You know, they could see oh. they could see as they went out. Hmm. And so, and so somebody convinced the powers that be that its continuation was yes. necessary. And it was John Summerson who was the director of the Stone Museum that we've been talking about earlier. Mm. He was the great champion for Stone. We owe him a lot, actually, because they could easily have demolished the whole thing. Well, it sounds like that brings us sort of up to date in a, in a wobbly yeah. sort of way. Yeah. And, and to the end of our show today. Okay. A reminder, if you want to come and see the show, there's no better way to do that than to Google Dulwich Picture Gallery. Is there an enormous ticket price? Not enormous at all. It's perfectly reasonable. It's £12, can't remember off, offhand, but there you go, something around that. That sounds like a deal. And, and a cafe and toilets now as well. We, I, we have everything you could, the heart could possibly desire. And if the sun will only come out, it's just the nicest place to have lunch because we now have, you know, we have uh, seats and tables on the lawn and it's just a lovely place to sit. Well, get some of that leafiness yourself, why don't you, listener? Uh, for this week, Ian DeJardin, thanks very much. You're welcome, it's been a pleasure. all for this week my thanks for this week to Ian DeJana thanks to to Louisa B and Bernie Barclay theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea I'm in Quentin Wolfe <laughs>